podcast with your hosts, Dennis and Michelle. Hello, Cubs, and welcome to This Week in the Bear Cave. I am your host, Dennis Zarrell, and this week we are sponsored by Abode Real Estate, your professional real estate advisors in Colorado Springs and Taylor County, the historic Butte Theater in Cripple Creek, Colorado, bringing you the best productions in the United States, and Animus Wellbeing, your nutritional consultants in Woodland Park, Colorado. Before I get too far into the show today, I want to wish a very happy birthday to my wife and partner in crime for almost 27 years. I love you, and I hope that you have a wonderful birthday because you deserve it. Yep, she's an amazing lady, so I hope your day is great. I hope you get everything that you want for your birthday, and uh, yeah, thanks for putting up with me for all these years. Well, I don't know about you, but I am so glad that we are starting to pull out of all this election drama and putting that stuff behind us. I would suspect that there's probably going to be some more stupidity coming in the future, but at least the smack talk has kind of settled down a bit, or maybe it's just uh, because I haven't personally kept up with it or just uh, ignored it altogether. It was just getting to the point where I think that the entire community was just over it. And I'm sure we'll be finding out the uh, final tally later on as we talk about that in the show with our field producer, Trevor Phipps. But at this point, I don't think there's any kind of drastic change from what we talked about last week. Yeah, it just makes me wonder sometimes, doesn't it? You jump from the frying pan into the fire. But I go back to what Mayor Labar said a few months ago, too, is that uh, some people just seriously need to get a hobby and stay away from social media. And even Heldor has been working overtime on that censor button lately. It's uh, kind of funny, really, to see the holier-than-thou people get canceled. Yeah, happens to you, too. But it is pretty sad when even AI is sick of you and has had enough. Anyway. Like I said before, there is plenty of drama coming up in the next few months for you election junkies to fight about, so fear not. But in the meantime, the weather's perfect outside, so get out of your basins, put away that pizza and Diet Cokes, get outside, do some walking, and enjoy Teller County. Yeah, maybe take a hike or something, though. But give that brain of yours a break and give us a break as well. I think we all deserve it. This week, we welcome back Mayor-elect of Cripple Creek, Annie German, to the Bear Cave, and we're going to talk about an issue that affects us here in Teller County and really the country, and that is mental health and suicide. And it's one of those topics that we've thought about for a while, but really didn't have anybody to connect with until I met Mayor Durham. And uh, it just seemed like the timing was right this time of year that uh, we bring this to the forefront. And Annie is the person that we want to talk to because she is an advocate for suicide prevention. So we look forward to having her back in here and talking about that topic today. But now that she is the newly elected mayor, we'll probably also want to talk to her about her goals and visions for the city coming up in the next few years. This week, we also have Butte Theater Manager Zach Staniel coming on to the Bear Cave Hotline to give us an update on this year's Christmas production at the Butte Theater. Yeah, that's going to start right around the corners. And uh, of course, that's coming up later on in the show as well. As you know, we will be dark next week in observance of the yearly feeding frenzy. But when we come back the following week, our guests will be Jerry Penland and Arnie Sparnins. And of course, they are the advocates for the Citizens Initiative. And we're going to be talking about that. And, uh, yeah, kind of this whole SDR battle and the special election coming up in Woodland Park on December 12th. And as you all know, this has been going on for well over a year and it'll finally come to a head in the next few weeks. And I don't know about you, but I look forward to putting this nut roll behind us and getting on with life without the drama. Yeah, I know. Good luck with that. We're still working on the December lineup and 
uh, right now, I may be having one of my old compatriots and partners in crime, Rat Salt, who is the voice of Score Off-Road Racing. He may be coming on to the Bear Cave Hotline. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, what he's been up to and uh, the Baja 1000, which is happening as we speak right now. So it's been a while since I talked to Rat, but uh, really look forward to having him come in and uh, having a little bit of off-road talk. Well, on to the Bear Cave rant for this week. And it's a subject that we've been discussing and talking about for quite some time, probably as long as this podcast has been on and certainly since Sniffy Joe Biden has been sleeping in his chair in the Oval Office. And the issue, of course, is the border crisis that Sniffy Joe and his band of woke fools have created. The same crisis that we are on the hook for and the bill that is now coming to us all. And what brought this back to my attention yet once again, not that it's really ever been off my radar, is that there are hundreds, if not thousands of migrants from Venezuela wanting to return back to where they came from. The reason they say there is nothing here for us. Well, we could have told you that in the first place. And I guess they are finally getting tired of sleeping in tents and living in holding areas, and especially in those woke progressive cities, one being specifically New York. And the one thing that is abundantly clear, and it's evident, is that Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, as we call him, and his administrations, they are not serious about border security. And witness after witness testifying before Congress have demonstrated the immense human cost of the border crisis and the debilitating financial bill that's now coming, even for the smallest border towns, all the way up to the Big Apple. So we're about three years into Sniffy's administration, and there is still this unprecedented crisis at the southern border, and it's not slowing down. In fact, the encounters at the border has increased every month from June to September. Get this, there were 269,735 encounters at the border, which is an increase of 86% from June of this year, according to Customs and Border Protection. The chaos represents just a national threat to security. It's a humanitarian crisis, and it is a public safety nightmare at this point. Now, if you recall, our own Teller County Sheriff, Sheriff Mikesell, has been saying this for a while, and when he tried to do something about it, he was sued by a bunch of progressive numbskulls who are now part of this ongoing problem. So... This week, a report was released by the House Committee on Homeland Security, and it makes it clear that the financial cost of Sniffy Joe's administration and this open door policy has become unbearable for families and is stretching local and state budgets to the breaking point. It's out of control. And there is no doubt that the policies of my jerkus are also directly to blame. You know, under this little ball-headed gnome's leadership, DHS has paroled or released nearly 3 million people into the country, while another 1.7 million known as the so-called gotaways have entered without apprehension. So that's nearly 5 million people that we know of that are now large in communities, which is overwhelming states and cities, and is placing massive strains on limited resources. And look no further than New York, Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, and Denver to see the devastating and comprehensive cost of this crisis. And make no mistake about it, it is a crisis. And I'm not sure what the total cost has been in Denver so far, but I am sure that it is going to climb into the billion-dollar level at some point. All this has happened since Secretary Majerkus took over, where our country has experienced this level of unprecedented migration to the U.S. from people who are relying on the U.S. taxpayer to house and feed them. Well, that's not the plan. At least it wasn't the plan. It wasn't the plan under the Donald, that's for sure. 
And don't forget, this is all coupled with the scams and the criminal activities that are being conducted by these coyotes who are killing people, including tossing babies into the Rio Grande River. And it's simply being ignored or the American people are getting excuses and then they are still blaming the Donald on the current mess that they have created. Does my jerkus actually think that the American people are still buying into this lie? Well, apparently some are. Well, maybe the progressives are because they have been hypnotized by these fools and they are incapable of seeing reality. Sniffy Joe and his handlers are orchestrating this crisis. For example, most of these sanctuary cities are now having a huge burden being placed on them. Just in healthcare alone, they've recorded nearly 30,000 visits from illegal aliens arriving in New York City. That's just New York City alone. Not to mention the hundreds of births that have already occurred in the United States. The cost is tremendous. And in the near future, I think that hospitals and medical facilities, they're going to be overrun by illegal aliens seeking free medical care. And, you know, if you don't believe me, here's another example. And you can find all this information online, just easy. I mean, you just type in Medicaid, Medicare, and just put in, you know, illegal immigrants or migrants, whatever. The total Medicaid cost for emergency services from undocumented aliens, which is, like I say, really a nice way to say illegal aliens, in fiscal year 2021 and 2022, it exceeds $12 billion, $12 billion. And that's according to the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services. Let that number sit in your head for a second. $12 billion. And that's just medical. Well, how about education? One study estimated that uh, New York City alone, and probably Denver as well, could spend around $440 million next year to provide services to migrant students in cities' public school systems. And of course, these students often cost a little bit more money because they have a lack of proficiency in English. So just think about the teachers who are overwhelmed who have migrant students in their classrooms. Of course, not every teacher speaks Spanish or the, I don't know, 151 other languages spoken by migrants from around the world who have infiltrated into the United States. And that's just the southern border alone. We haven't even talked about the migrants coming in from the north through Canada. But anyway, it affects all facets of life. And meanwhile, law enforcement, especially in the southern border where their budgets are probably even tighter, are assuming all manners of increased cost. And in one Texas county alone, government employees recently took a pay cut to cover the cost of burying and cremating illegal aliens found dead on their jurisdiction. They have done that on their own. They've taken pay cut because there's a humanitarian issue that's there as well. So I don't want to hear the progressives saying that, oh, you, you, uh, you conservatives, you know, you have no idea, you have no compassion. Look, when public officials are taking pay cuts in order to make sure that people get a proper burial or a cremation, that says a lot to me. Anyway, a man by the name of Sheriff Emmett Shelton of McMullen County, Texas, which is home to about, oh, 600 residents, pretty small town, pretty tiny town, actually. He provided documents to Congress, and it showed that his department spends roughly half a million dollars on illegal immigration response annually. And that's just one tiny town. What do you think the cost is in total for the entire southern border? And these are just some of the costs that these policymakers can document. Now, there's got to be hundreds and thousands of dollars that uh, the American public doesn't see at all that's being spent on this failed policy. And according to the Center for Immigration Studies, the total cost of providing shelter and services just to the known gotaways and illegal aliens released under my Jerkus's policy may exceed, hold on to your hats now, $450 billion annually. Yeah. Think about that for a minute. So I go back to you progressives and conservatives who are wasting time arguing with each other about stupid school board elections. 
you're all missing the boat on some real issues that are affecting this country. But maybe the time could be better spent in writing a letter to your representatives in Congress or be a stone in your senator's shoe. That's what I do. And most of the time, you're going to get back some kind of a form letter. But at least you took action and it's a matter of record. Yeah, look at the big picture and work together, people. Otherwise, there is very little hope for the future of this country. Put those egos aside. Move forward. This division, political or otherwise, is what our enemies want, and it is working. Just look around and see what's going on in the country at the moment. People are cheering on terrorists. They're releasing murderers and criminals out of prison. And at the same time, they are advocating to take away your Second Amendment rights. Anyone else see a problem here? Well, don't even get me started on this whole fake climate warrior stuff like Greta Thunberg. She was in the news again. Yeah, just this week, she was running her donut hole about her phony climate claims when she suddenly shifted gears and jumped on the anti-Semitic bandwagon, which calls for the ceasefire in her apparent support of Hamas in Gaza. Then she went a step further and posted a picture of herself holding a sign that read, I stand with Gaza along with other people that were saying stuff like uh, climate justice now, whatever. So I guess the question is, Ms. Climate Warrior, please explain to me the association between the Middle East war and climate change. And one thing that they always do is they always leave out the fact that Hamas attacked Israel. So Greta, I guess you just need to stay on permanent strike, like you say. As I recall, even though you're on permanent strike, you've never really had a real job or you've never had a job in the name of climate change. So yeah, go figure. So to all you social warriors, you are all just a bunch of phonies. End of story. Well, when we come back, we'll be talking to someone who is not a phony, and that is the mayor-elect of Cripple Creek, Annie Durham. We'll be right back. You know, moving can be stressful. I know. I've moved 13 times in 20 years and I've lived in four different states. When it finally came time to move back to Colorado, Woodland Park and Teller County were our target locations. But before I moved back home, I was looking for a real estate broker who understood and had experience with military families and knew the area well. I found Abode Real Estate and Joshua Dorsey. I called Josh right away and it only took 35 days to not only find our forever home, but to close and move into it. Josh understood exactly what we were looking for because he's a common sense person and knows a good deal from a bad one. He'll make every effort to make sure you get the home that you absolutely want and love. As your real estate advisor, Josh will focus on client satisfaction. His business is about service and he's not happy until you're happy. Whether it's finding you a home, finding the best loan, or helping you get the most out of selling your home, Josh is there to guide you. So if you're considering a real estate professional, give Josh a call today at 719-433-4773 or email him at joshua at csabode.com. That's J-O-S-H-U-A at C-S-A-B-O-D-E.com. I'm confident that you will be completely satisfied. Cave and joining me today in studio is Mayor-elect of Cripple Creek, Annie Durham. 
that has a nice ring to it, Mayor Annie Durham. I'm just going to take a little getting used to, but I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much. That was a hell of a victory. I, I've got to say, uh, I expected the numbers to be a little bit, uh, you got two and a half times the vote that uh, your, your opponent did. I was very surprised, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. I'm still in a little bit of shock over that. <laughs> so, but you know, I'm obviously happy with the outcome. So. Yeah. Well, you did something right. That's for sure. You know, between the sending out the community survey and then just taking time to meet with people one-on-one. And I've also been to, with the exception of five um, council meetings, I've been to every meeting since October of 2021. And so, you know, just uh, a decision that I did not make lightly. And I've been just very focused on the task at hand. Yeah, yeah. Well, we threw a little bear cave karma your way as well. So, (laughs) Yes, you did. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, there's so many things to tackle and you're coming in at a period when, uh, boy, there's a lot going on in Cripple Creek. You got Chamonix opening up, you got the ice castles things going on, you got ice fest coming along. So it's like, well, let's just throw overboard and see if she can swim. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I'm, um, you know, and I've said this several times, um, I'm very, very optimistic about the makeup of the council come January. So I'm very happy with the dynamics. And I think that we're going to be a very um, productive council. So. Well, first husband, he's going to have to go to some meetings now. Well, actually, he's going by first dude. That's first his, dude. That's his title. I like that. <laughs> so. We got to get first dude in here one of these well, days. We'll get him in here. We'll get him in here. Yeah. Well, I, I got to tell you that I'm thrilled. And everybody I've talked to, because, you know, like, like I say, I hang out in Cripple Creek quite a bit, was uh, was pretty happy as well. So what do you think some of the short-term goals are right now besides, you probably have a lot of homework to do. I'm glad you brought that up because the answer is yes, I do. Um, so kind of my goals over the next several weeks before January 3rd, of course, I'll continue um, attending council meetings. Um, I'm receiving council packets now. So just really diving deep into those materials. And I am allocating 30 minutes a day to reading through the municipal code, um, which is wow. very engaging material. Um, Snooze or reading. You know, it'll be my bedtime reading. But, but you know, I just want to be as familiar with everything as possible. And um, I also have a membership now to the Colorado Municipal League and they provide a lot of resources and training and webinars and so on. And so I just really want to immerse myself in that and just be as informed and educated as possible. Well, you've got a full plate. I mean, besides all your work that you do at the school, you know, the things that you volunteer for. And then now I guess you got to cut a couple of programs here and there, right? Yeah, that's the downside. Um, What am I going to do? I'm not going to be able to play shows at the Butte um, for the next four years um, Ah, come January, which I, you know, that's a huge piece of my life. And so, you know, that's definitely a compromise Um, as far as the extra volunteerism that I do outside of work, which is, you know, a pretty significant amount. I won't be doing those pieces anymore. It'll be my job in mayor. And that's pretty much it. Now, that being said, Thinner Theater Company is coming back to do the Christmas show this year and their pianist, Jamie Mablin, he's amazing, um, but he has to leave town on December 24th. So I will be playing the closing week of the Christmas show at the Butte. So that'll be my final hurrah for the next four years. So. Well, good, because we have Zach coming on later on the show to talk about the Christmas show as well. And, awesome. And, uh, yep. I'm sure that he's going to be thrilled for that. He's gone through some challenges this year. So, you know, and I have to say he has handled it with an incredible amount of grace. Um, I really, oh, Mel Moser is back in the Christmas show for what it's worth. So that's cool. for those who don't know, Zach took over Mel's position when Mel moved out of town. And so I'm just so impressed with what Zach has done. And no matter what he, he makes it work. He figures it out. He's very dedicated, very motivated. And I also sit on the, the friends of the Butte board, which is um, produces the community 
community season. And so Zach is also on that board. So I actually work with Zach quite a bit and um, he's just a great human. So we are very lucky to have him, have him in Cripple Creek. So. Yeah. I talk to him as much as I can too. He's become a good friend and uh, now he's a new dad. So I'm like, okay, how much sleep are you getting every night? And he's like, nah, not much. Oh yeah. He's, and then that's the other thing that impresses me. Uh, um, his daughter was born in early August. And so right. new dad, um, handling, you know, what he's had to handle this year and still manages to come out on top. So he impresses me. I remember the first time he came into the bear cave a couple of years ago. Yeah. It's been, yeah, it's been almost two years now mm-hmm. since, uh, the beauty has been sponsoring the show. And I said, uh, how are things going? And I, I'll never forget his, uh, his comments. He's like, uh, I'm drinking out of a fire hose. I'm like, <laughs> all right, that's, yeah, that's a good way to put it. You know, some things haven't changed at all, but, uh, well, I'm glad to see that you get to come back at least one more time and, mm-hmm. and play. So maybe that's the weekend I'll have to go up and cause I enjoy your performances and certainly the Butte theater. Well, I'm playing December 23rd through the 31st. So. All right. Right on. Awesome. Well, we'll pick a date. Okay. Sometime that weekend. But uh, anyway, besides all that kind of stuff, we, uh, we came on today or I brought you on today because uh, it's getting to be that time of year again. And it's always a season that can be either a lot of joy or a lot of depression and anxiety and things like that. And what I'm talking about is mental illness and suicide. And you have gone through a traumatic experience yourself and uh, you're willing to share that you're definitely an advocate. So maybe just share if you would the experiences that you went through. Um, yes. Yeah, so my late husband, um, Will Duncan died by suicide on June 10, 2008. So it'll be uh, 16 years um, this upcoming June. And when Will and I first got together about the first, we were together four and a half years altogether. And the first year and a half, um, he really didn't tell me a lot about the struggles that he was going through internally. But after, after, you know, 18 months together, I think he realized that he could trust me. And so he really started to share about a lot of the things that was happening with him and the struggles he was having um, with his mental health. And so, you know, those last three years, um, he was an amazing person, absolutely brilliant, but that was part, I think part of the problem. And he worked for a global IT corporation. And then the last um, year that he was alive, he actually created his own LLC and was very, very, very successful at it. But his, um, his mental health diagnosis, it enabled him to work for extended periods of time. Like there were some jobs where he would be awake and working like 36 hours straight. Um, And I didn't quite understand that in the beginning until he started to share more with me. But, you know, while, while it definitely had a benefit for him in his working life, it definitely took a toll on him. And so suicide, his uh, suicidal ideation was something that he made me aware of, you know, well before it happened. And so he, um, he was seeing a psychiatrist. He went every two weeks. Um, He was very diligent about the medication he was taking. And actually the last six months that he was alive, I left my job to come home and work for him because he did struggle a little bit with kind of keeping things straight with what he was doing. And all of this time, um, you know, I, I went with him to his appointments. I made his breakfast and gave him his medication every morning and he would go through really, really bad spells, but he would always come out of it. And so I just kept holding on to this hope that he's going to make it. We're going to be fine. We just have to work through this moment. Well, the day that it happened it actually happened overnight. We were at home, but the the day leading up to it was, um, and this is what took me by surprise because being aware that he had this ideation I had made this assumption that if it were to happen, it would always, it would be when he was in a very low place where when he spiraled down and when he was in a dark place, but we actually had an amazing day that day. We were making plans to sell our house in Broomfield and move down to the San Luis Valley. And we had bought some property down near Trinidad. And so when it happened, it was, um, it was 
3.50 a.m. And so I had already gone to bed. And um, long story short, it was a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And so I, I was in the house and so I heard it, you know, and I, and I found him. And so he, um, he didn't, he didn't pass instantly. I called 911. Um, he was taken to the hospital. He did pass an hour and 28 minutes later. And so that experience, um, you know, they say that you, you can't let it define you, but I will tell you that when I look back on my life as, as a whole, it, I really look at it before and after it happened, you know, Lee, it is, it has changed me. I'm still foundationally the same person, but it is definitely even to this day and I, it will impact me significantly for the rest of my life. But because of that experience, I am, I'm very open about it um, because suicide is something that has been stigmatized for so long. And we have to normalize this conversation for people to be able to talk about it. And so um, in, in my openness, I'm so grateful that I've been able to have some really valuable conversations, you know, over the last 15 and a half years um, with people who have been going through the same. And I'll tell you, after it happened, um, I met my current husband, Beva, about a year after it happened. And Beva has been amazing. In fact, um, Beva loves Will's family. You know, they've met, we've hung out. It's just a really kind of a, a cool dynamic. But I, I too, for several years after it happened, I, um, I thought about suicide a lot myself. And so, and, and they say that, you know, somebody as a suicide loss survivor, your chances of suicide are greatly increased as a survivor. And so I was very fortunate to have a very strong um, support system around me. But one of the mistakes that I made looking back and looking back, I wouldn't do anything differently because, you know, we are the sum of our experiences and I'm really right. happy with where I've gotten to at this point in my life. But I isolated myself a lot. Yeah, um, yeah. In fact, my 30th birthday was um, six months after he passed. And so I basically what I did my days, my birthday's the day after Christmas. I lied to everybody in my life about where I was going to be. I told my family that I was going to be with Will's family. I told Will's family I was going to be with my family. I, you know, I, I because it's my 30th birthday and I don't want to celebrate. I don't want to talk about it. And so what I did was isolate. And I ended up doing that quite a lot. And so that is something that I, um, you know, when talking to people and, and talking to suicide survivors, the first thing that I would say, and the hardest thing not to do is to isolate yourself. Yeah. And so it's unfortunate to go through this experience to gain that perspective. But, you know, last, um, this past January, I was a guest speaker at the suicide awareness symposium in Woodland park. It was, um, the first annual, um, put on by the Teller County mental health Alliance. I'm Ashley Shields. She's incredible. And just being able to go into that venue and sharing that story, you know, with 120 people, it, it was a lot for me to, to get up there. And, and, you know, the, the weeks leading up to it, I'll admit I had a lot of anxiety, going into it, I didn't know if I was going to be able to stand up there and keep myself together, you know, but I did. And everybody in that room was incredible, you know? And so just realizing the value in sharing my story, if I've made even one person rethink that decision, then, you know, that's a, that's a victory in of itself. But, you know, and then you look at the veteran suicide rate, that's something else that, you know, and you and I have talked about that, Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, um, it's come down slightly, I think it's, but it's still like, I think it's like 19 people a day or something like that, which is still way too high. Too many. Mm -hmm. But I, I can absolutely relate to what you're saying because uh, I've had three very, very close friends who have committed suicide. And um, one I hadn't seen for a long time, I, you know, as a high school buddy kind of thing. And, and uh, I was back in, I was back in Utah for some kind of a military thing. I just happened to be there. And he committed suicide with a handgun as well. And there were no indicators at all. I mean, there just weren't. And I couldn't get that out of my mind for 
at least a good year. I thought about it just about every other day because I've had those same thoughts as well, uh, whether they be PTSD related or some, some kind of trigger that whatever it was. And I, I managed to pull myself out of it, but then it happened to another friend and another friend. And, uh, the reason I wanted to really get this out in the open, I've been thinking about this for a couple of years because, uh, the last veteran that committed suicide that I knew about here in Woodland Park was, I think, two years ago, this coming Christmas. And the police officers who were dealing with the, with the whole scenario just, ah, guy's drunk, he's, he'll be fine. And people are trying to tell the officers, it's like, look, he's called four people around the country, pretty much just saying goodbye to them. And they just said, ah, sleep it off, he'll, you know, he'll be fine. And of course, we know at the end of the story, he committed suicide that night. And I became so angry. I was so angry and upset of what had happened. And, you know, thank God these officers have been fired since then. But I thought, you know what? I, I need to, I need to bring this out in the open. I don't really have the experience other than my personal experiences with that. And then I met you and then I thought, you know what? This is something we should talk about because you're an advocate. You've been through it. You've seen what happens. And uh, I thought it was just really important to have you on the show this week, just to talk about this right before Thanksgiving. Well, you know, when you bring up an excellent point, um, the holidays are some of the hardest time of the year, but I will tell you, um, after Will passed, like I said, that was June 10th. And the next morning when I woke up, you know, that transition between asleep and awake and you don't, you know, and then when you become fully conscious and that moment of realizing that first time you realize that I'm going to wake up every single morning for the rest of my life and I'm never going to see that person again. And then I started thinking about, you know, all the things that we won't be doing together. And one of those was the holidays, you know, thinking about Thanksgiving and Christmas and yeah. it's so overwhelming. But what I took for granted was um, <laughs> I woke up, it was a, it was a few weeks later. I got up in the morning and around 10, 10 30 in the morning in my neighborhood, I start hearing this popping this popping. And I realized, and I was so, I was so um, just displaced from everything in that moment that I had completely forgotten. It was the 4th of July. Oh, wow. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know what, this is going to be going on all day and all night. So what I did and exactly what I should have done and what anybody should do is I picked up the phone and I called a friend, my friend, Eric, he lived in Boulder at the time. And I said, Eric, I'm at my house and fireworks are going off. And I didn't need to say anything else. He said, you get up here right now. You're going to hang out with me today. And so that that's the thing is that as a survivor, um, even now being blindsided by some, by memories, um, by smells, by sounds, by songs, by places. And as time goes on, you know, I've, I've learned how to manage that a little bit better within myself. So it's not, you know, just this constant traumatic thing, but the reality is like that will happen, you know, for the rest of my life. And so, but, but that morning I, I had taken for granted, you know, I was thinking about Thanksgiving and Christmas. I wasn't thinking about that, but especially Thanksgiving and Christmas, um, you know, like, like you said, um, you know, some people look forward to it. Others definitely don't. And I think this is one of the most dangerous times of the year for someone who is experienced, experiencing suicidal ideation. You brought up something that uh, it's, it's a really valid point. The people who are left behind, you're suffering from PTSD as well. It's not just a soldier issue or, or a police officer or people like that. And suicide is, to a certain extent, it's very selfish. Because you don't think about what's being left behind. You know, you're so deep into your mental disposition that obviously that doesn't come to mind because you're suffering and the pain is, is happening. But it's the people who are left behind who have to pick up the pieces after an act like that is committed. That's not really talked about a lot. I don't hear a lot about that. 
I'm glad you brought that up because somebody shared an analogy with me um, several months ago and it made so much sense. Um, Somebody who is in that mental state, it's like they're inside of a cube that it's all mirrors and all the people that love them are standing right outside that cube. But that person inside that space, all they see is a reflection of themselves in that, you know, whether it's the sadness or the self-loathing or, or all of those pieces that, you know, it doesn't matter. And I, I learned that firsthand. You can love somebody to the ends of the earth, but, you know, at the end of the day, they make that decision. And it's not that they're disregarding you, but right. the suffering becomes so great. And with Will, it wasn't it wasn't sadness. It was um, he, he was so tired with the way his mind worked. He just got to the point where, you know, he he did write a letter. It was a beautiful letter. It wasn't filled with hatred or anger or anything like that. It was more of an apology. But for for those who are left behind, I will say it's, you know, before it happened, knowing, like I said, knowing that, you know, that the possibility was there, you speculate on how will I react if it does. And what I can tell you is no amount of speculation in the world could ever prepare you for what it is actually like. And and it got really, really overwhelming with um, people wanting to support me. And and that's part of the reason I, I started isolating the way I did because I felt like so many people coming in. Yeah, it becomes too much. It becomes, and you know what, and they were looking out for my best interests and I love them to death for that. But there, I had to, I had to kind of kind of go through some stuff on, on my own. And and so that's why, you know, I, I did what I did and the way I handled it. And the one thing I would tell any um, suicide loss survivor is that you don't owe an explanation to anybody for how you grieve. You don't owe, you, you owe nobody, you don't owe them anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, the other thing I would say that, um, and I understand people's intentions are well-meaning, but some of the questions that people asked after the fact, um, the questions I got asked, um, number one, how did he do it? Number two, why did he do it? I was asked, um, did I regret that we didn't have children? <laughs> you know, so, you know, and, and that, and that was hard, you know, and I, I think that we are such a-holes <laughs> you know, and I, you know, I, I, swear. I didn't resent it because I, I know I understand, you know, people want to understand. And of course I was the one that was married to him. I spent the most time with him. So, you know, they would, they would come to me looking for, for an understanding and an explanation, but any advice I would give to somebody that's supporting a suicide loss survivor, let them tell you, you know, check in with them, let them know you're there, but it takes time to be able to get to that point where you can, you can really talk about those things. So, you know, it's a really confounding, confounding thing. It is. And uh, I was surprised with Teller County. Because the the rate of suicide, I've, I've only been up here going on four years now, but uh, when I first got here, it, you know, I'm sure that COVID had a lot to do with it because we had a government that just locked us down for no real good reason. We, we know that now. But you start isolating people and telling them they can't do certain things or you can't go outside or now I'm watching people walking around outside with masks on by themselves or driving in their car with masks on by themselves. This mental disposition that our government put us in, it's incredible what kind of chaos it actually created. But then when I came up to Teller County and I, I kept hearing about, man, there's a lot of suicide up here. And I, I was seeing news articles. I thought, okay, maybe COVID has something to do with it. But it's kind of goes hand in hand with people who live in isolated areas, especially up in the mountains. And we have these long winters. You kind of have a tendency to isolate. You don't get out as much as you did before. But you're working in a school system and the rate of teen suicide is quite high in Taylor County. You know, and that's, um, I'll be honest with you, I attribute a lot of the increase in teen suicide now, I mean, globally, 
Yeah. Um, social media is a really, oh a really cruel place to be. We had this conversation <laughs> with uh, the other mayor of Woodland Park last week. It is, yeah. it has become such a, a wasteland of vitriol and hate and, uh, Boy, you hit the nail around the head. You know, and it's um particularly increased amongst girls. Um, so the the thing that I love about working in the Cripple Creek Victor School District is that we are such a small district that it is nearly impossible for a student to slip through the cracks. You know, and so yeah. we are very very relationship oriented. Um, we have some great counselors. Um, we have a lot of mental health supports in place, and I am very 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 grateful to say this is my tenth year in the district. We have not experienced a student suicide in Cripple Creek in the time that I've been in the district. And I, I pray and hope to the ends of the earth that that stays true, you know, forever. So now that you brought that up, Woodland Park School District got rid of their kind of their mental health counselors and they didn't take the grants as needed. I see that as a really bad thing. Because there is so much, uh, I mean, the, the district is split 50-50. And we've, we've talked about this a little bit. And um, the philosophy of some of the board members maybe a little bit more to the religious right. And some people have even said that it's a uh, Christian nationalism that they're displaying. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but to get rid of that program and get, you know, not accept the money for mental health. And then of course, losing counselors, that doesn't seem like a good plan to me at all. You know, especially um, coming out of COVID, I will tell you that the isolation for kids has been very, very, very detrimental in, in a lot of ways. And so we are going to be seeing the effects of this for many, many years to come. And, you know, and I will tell you that the day that it was March 12th, 2020, I will never forget. It was a Thursday afternoon when it became very apparent that something, this situation was significant. It was seventh period and it was the end of the day. And so I was in the choir class. I played piano for the choir. And one of my coworkers came and knocked on the door and she pulled the choir teacher and I out in the hallway. She said, send the kids to their lockers, have them grab all of their belongings and then have them meet in the cafeteria because we're not going to be back in the building on Monday. Um, I'll be perfectly honest with you. When I was a kid, if a teacher told me that, I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's great. Hey, no um, school. You know, but we, we both went back into the classroom and there was uh, maybe 10 kids in there and explained to them what was going on. They needed to get their belongings and, you know, meet in the cafeteria. We wouldn't be back. And the room was silent. And then one by one, they started crying. And that was, uh, sorry, that was absolutely heartbreaking, you know, for a lot of our, our students, you know, school's the, the safest place that, that they can be. And the, those social connections, you know, developmentally are so profoundly important. And so when we went into the closure and, and went virtual, uh, especially in Cripple Creek, you know, we, we have the, you know, the kids that live in town, but we have a lot of outlying areas right. where these guys live so far away from each other that you, they can't just walk to their friend's house and hang out. And so a lot of them ended up, you know, technology was their, their form of communication. And so then at the, um, after spring break in 2021, when we finally were able to, everybody came, cause we did the cohort model, you know, for a little while, right. but then we all came back together finally. And it's really kind of, um, to an extent, kind of relearning how to be around other people all over again. And that's not just kids, that's adults. I mean, yeah. we've all had to figure out how to like interact with other humans, you know? And so again, um, I, I do think that that did have an impact on the suicide rate in Teller County. Obviously you've talked to a lot of people about this issue and what are some of the signs that that are obvious signs that you can, you can look for maybe for those of us who have, or had friends who have committed suicide or 
dealt with that. Uh, sometimes there's trigger warnings. Sometimes there isn't. Um, I will say, um, actually one of my Facebook friends a couple of days ago put up a post that said, I just don't, I don't want to be here anymore. So of course I reached out to them immediately, you know, so the obvious ones, the comments. Yeah. The amount of bullying I see with kids or that I've read about is just staggering. And it's like, uh, I don't know how the parents feel about this kind of thing, but social media, you don't know sometimes if you're, yeah, you know, everybody has a cell phone. Right. Kid could be on a site that you don't know about during the day, you know, and I've, I've got to think that the parents need to be open about this subject as well. I will say we've got some great parents um, in the district. We do have a lot of parents, honestly, especially, you know, working in the casino or the mine industry and those schedules can, you know, be pretty unconventional. And so a lot of our kids, they do spend quite a bit of time without parental oversight. And, you know, those parents are just working as hard as they can to survive. And so it's such a pervasive and subversive thing at times. And so parents can't have eyes all the time on what their kids are doing, but- You know, that, that awareness is really important, but to go back to what you said about, you know, like signs, you know, the obvious, you know, the comments, um, somebody who, if you see a change in a personality, I would say that's a big cue for me, you know, as far as, you know, somebody who normally they're, you know, more on the upbeat side, kind of that change towards something a little bit sadder, a little bit darker, you know, that's always a, a big sign for me. Um, something that, that will did, and it was only in, I mean, he was brilliant. What can I say in retrospect, it became obvious, um, in the, in the weeks and the months following that he had been planning things for quite some time. Um, some planning about, you know, talking about, he told me, you know, if, um, if I were to give this camper to somebody, it would be to so-and-so if I were to give, if I could, I would buy my sister a car. If I, you know, and he started kind of, so, you know, kind of that thing, as far as like, like the, the material world and, you know, looking back, that's, that's another one that I would say to, to kind of watch out for. And people isolating themselves, I say that's a, that's a big one. You know, somebody who normally engages quite a bit, you know, that change in behavior. And that's why, you know, like in my, in my friend group and in my family, if I haven't heard from somebody in a quite a while that normally touches base with me, just because of my experience, that's what I go to. And so I'll reach out to them, you know, check in with people, just check in with people and don't assume that somebody else is supporting them. Assume that you're the only one that does, you know, just make the assumption, be safe with it and, and keep that person engaged, um, especially somebody who's experiencing a loss, um, going through grief, whether it's, you know, a divorce or someone passing away or losing their job, you know, those big life changes. When you ask them, are you okay? And they say, yeah, don't believe it. Don't assume. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. Kind of stay, stay in that person's life. So Will's nephew actually, um, he, he died by suicide two years before I met him. And the dated he did he was a an incredible incredible kid he was 18 years old and will had told me that day that um he was at work and his nephew had called him and he called him like three or four times but you know will in the moment and this something that he felt incredibly guilty about afterward he's like i'll call him after work i'll call him after work well then it happened that afternoon well what his nephew had done that day he was just calling everybody he was calling everybody he loved calling everybody in his life and just telling them i just want you to know i love you but again like i said the when when it happened with Will, it didn't happen in a moment that was like the darkest of the dark. It was like I said, we were that whole day we were making life plans, you know, and we were excited and we were happy and things were going really, really well. And so, you know, in some cases, like you said, like, and that's why, you know, I, I don't believe people should feel guilty after it happens because Number one, it's the choice that that person made. And like I said, with my experience, I learned that no matter, there's nothing I could do in my power um, in the end to stop it. I did everything I could <laughs> to help prevent it. Um, but 
sometimes there are no, there are no signs, you know, the, the, the behavior doesn't change and there's nothing out of the ordinary. And people have asked me, do I feel guilty? That's another question I've been asked. And I honestly say, no, I know I did my part as hard as I could. You know, I left my job. I went with him to his appointment, say, gave him the medication. I supported him the best that I could, but that wasn't enough. And I think that's what the heartbreaking thing was for me, because I, I honestly believed if I hoped hard enough, if I just hoped hard enough that it wouldn't happen. And that was what really crushed me for a really long time is I had so much hope that we were on a good trajectory and that we were going to be okay. And then we weren't. And I heard the same thing from, uh, like I said, one of my closest friends and his girlfriend was just so, so guilty about that. And it got so bad to a point that uh, I thought for sure that she was going to be the next to go by her own hand. She went out and got help. You know, she talked to people. She went to a uh, support group. And as far as I know, she's living a, you know, a healthy and full life right now. But it's that guilt that people carry. And man, I, I can't even imagine having a spouse. Friends are one thing, but you have a spouse that you're close to, that, like you said, that you see every day. And when that happens, you've got to be able to deal with the consequences of that action of that person that you love so much. And uh, I, I can't even imagine what people go through. That's just, uh, it's just devastating. Um, I will say I would never, ever wish that this experience on anybody. Yeah. I truly would not. The other thing that I realized and I was able to accept early on was that there's no going back to normal and having to create that new normal, you know, and that is, that has taken me 15 and a half years. And, and again, that's a path I'm going to be on for the rest of my life. There's a piece of me that will always be broken. And those pieces, like you don't put those pieces back together, but you have to build something new. And so, you know, I, I still have my moments. Absolutely. Um, I still talk to him every single day. I still stay in touch with his family, but that loss is is so profound, so incredibly profound. And it's definitely, um, it's a lifelong journey, you know, to work through it. But I think again, part of my healing process is being open about it and being able to talk to other people about it because, you know, taking a, a, a situation that is so in, just so incredibly negative and just finding some positive in it. And I think that was part of, part of my healing process as well is just like finding those positive things again. And it takes a really long time because for so long, for me, at least, um, there was no joy in anything. No, the thing, except, um, my animals, I will say, um, my dogs, you yeah, know, yeah. that my, I, I can honestly say, I, I believe my dogs truly saved my life. Um, even now there's certain songs that I cannot listen to. And even my husband, Bev and I, you know, we'll, we'll be riding along in the truck and he's got Sirius on and that song will come on. And I love him so much. He's so great because the second it comes on, he changes the station. Like he knows, he knows, he yeah. knows you know? And so I'm so blessed to have that in my life and, and people who have just been so supportive. And, and that's the other thing that's um, kind of heartbreaking is some people who are experiencing suicidal ideation, they don't have that support system in their life. And so for those people, you know, I've got the nine, eight, eight sticker on the back window of my car. I'm really glad they changed it from that 800 number, you know, to 988 for yeah, you know, the yeah. suicide crisis line. That, that's what I would say. Anybody who's, who's experienced it, please reach out to somebody, call that number, you know, reach out to somebody in your life, you know, because people, when, when we're experiencing that, that kind of chaos and that negativity within ourselves, we kind of put those blinders on, you know, and we just, we assume that nobody, nobody can possibly understand what we're going through, but something I've discovered and sharing it with others, um, um, I find a lot of people more relatable than I thought I could because there for such a long time, I really convinced myself that, you know, I've lost my mind, like that nobody, nobody can possibly understand like what's going on in my head. But by, by reaching out and sharing with people, you discover and you find that solidarity. And I have to say that solidarity is so important. That's one of the things that's helped me survive. 
Yeah, you brought up so many points. I could talk about this for hours, but obviously our, our time is cut short. And you answered the question I was going to say. It's like, okay, who do we call? Who, who can we talk to? And 988 is such an important thing because nobody remembers 1-800 numbers. It's like, are you kidding me? It's like, yeah. you, you know, two numbers that you need, 911-988, and, and you're in pretty good shape. Now, there's a symposium coming up this spring, right? Um, yes. And so I'm on the planning committee for that one. It's actually, I believe... I actually, I missed the last meeting, I'll be honest with you, but we're looking, I think it's going to be in February. And so when I have those details, I'll definitely um, share them with you. I will tell you last year we were capped at 120 people and we had 120 people in attendance. It was very, very well attended. It was a really great event. Um, A lot of stories were shared out. A lot of resources were shared as well. I would say locally um, for anybody who is looking for resources, the Teller County Mental Health Alliance is is a great resource. Um, Again, 988, call that number. Please pick up the phone and call that number. There's a lot of support and love in this world that the people aren't even aware of. Annie Durham, thank you for coming in today. Congratulations again on becoming the mayor and uh, for being so candid and, and telling your story and sharing it with us today. I think it means a lot. It certainly means a lot to me. And I know this is going to mean a lot to the people in the community. So I hope so. And thank you so much for having me back. It's always a pleasure. And I hope to return at some point. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we'll be inviting you back from time to time. Awesome. You know? I'll take it. <laughs> All right. I appreciate you coming in and taking the time. Thank you. Coming up next, it is story time with Michelle, followed by the big news with Trevor Phipps. So don't go away. Are you tired of gambling? Or maybe gambling just isn't your thing? Then you need to come visit the historic Butte Theater, located in the heart of Cripple Creek, Colorado. Enjoy our classic melodramas, Shakespeare of the West, musicals, comedies, and our community's favorite Christmas show. The Butte is fun for the whole family. So get your tickets today at thebuttetheater.com and come join in our fun. the bear cave where it is now story time with michelle on the bear cave hotline hey michelle what's going on i get to stay home today it was awesome (laughs) oh yeah yeah you had one of those uh ghost adventure things last night right yeah yep definitely had a late night and so I get to take the next day off. So it means I got to do my homework and I'm ready to roll. Yeah, nice. Uh, <laughs> did anybody find like a, uh, a drunk Santa Claus from uh, early 1900s floating around the jail? No, no, but they were, they were a little bit freaked out. They kind of called it quits a little bit early. So that was interesting. Uh, they probably found those uh, boxers that I hung up in, in solitary <laughs> confinement a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, they found them. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if that'd be enough to <laughs> to make him run. <laughs> well, if it was a pair that wasn't washed for a while, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I got the, I got the visual on that, and I'm making myself sick now. So right. 
<laughs> it's kind of a year round thing though, right? In the jail? Well, you know, I decided to give these guys a break. They, they've come and investigated a couple of times. So I've worked with them before. I wasn't going to schedule anything in November because yeah. the weather just gets so unpredictable and it gets, you know, cold. The basement's just brutal. There is no heat. So um, they were officially the last one for the year. So we'll start scheduling again in the spring. That basement is still my favorite place. You know, I, that it was really interesting because they said that had never bothered them before. And there was just three young men that were the group. And, you know, they were just like, yeah, this was not the same. We didn't even like being down there <laughs> this time. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Again, you know me, Mr. Skeptic. Uh, I, I go down there and just kind of look at the architecture, you know, and just uh, the way the whole gel was constructed. It's just so badass. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And just so people know, not everybody gets to go in the basement. So yeah, yeah. that was a barricade <laughs> special privilege. permission. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that was a barricade <laughs> privilege that day. But uh, you know me, I'm, I'm, I'm into old buildings and stuff like that and facades and just, uh, you know, kind of checking things out in the way things were built back then is uh, fascinating to me. And the fact that it's still standing and it's still sound is uh, oh, yeah. really kind of a testament to the architecture that was happening back then. Well, the first time I saw Carnegie on one of the steel beams, I just about like, I went, oh my God, this is Carnegie Steel right here in Cripple Creek in the basement of the jail. So, I mean, who gets to say that? <laughs> yeah, I never caught on to that until you pointed that out when we were doing our yeah. uh, location scout. And uh, yeah, it was like, holy smokes, man, check this out. I know, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that'll be around for another hundred years, guaranteed. Hopefully. Yeah. I don't know. I felt a blast from the mind last week. I was there for two days uh, running the show. And uh, one of the days I was sitting there, it was a real quiet day. And all of a sudden everything vibrated. And I was like, whoa, what was that? And I looked at the clock. I said, oh, three o'clock. They just blasted. And I felt it oh, down at the jail. Nice. Yeah, that was kind of kind of creepy. Oh, <laughs> like, I was going to say, can you imagine uh, being a uh, paranormal investigator and that happened? <laughs> oh, well, the jail cells shake even when nothing's going on. So. Oh. <laughs> I've had that. <laughs> Sounds like people had a great time. Yes, definitely. But what have we got going on for story time this week? Well, so we kind of touched bases last week on uh, the history of how Thanksgiving came around. And I thought, well, you know, we kind of touched a little bit on the food, but not really. And anymore today, the Thanksgiving is all about the food and the fair. So yeah. I thought, well, let's find out what kind of food they have possibly because nobody, there's no real documentation, but probably what they had at the first Thanksgiving. Wow. See, and this is what I've been asking for the last two weeks and uh, you're saving me a bunch of research. So let's talk about the old time Thanksgiving food. Heck yeah. So while no records exist of the exact food at the first Thanksgiving celebration, the Pilgrim documenter Edward Winslow noted in his journal that the colony's governor, William Bradford, sent four men on a quote-unquote fouling mission in preparation for the three-day event. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm just going to, I got to let it go. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I get it. That's the weirdest way to put it. But it's like, I mean, I, I understand what it is because that's what I'm doing the research on. But it's just kind of read that not attached to anything. They're fouling what? <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm in. <laughs> So it's just as likely that the fowling party returned with other birds we know that the colonists regularly consume, such as ducks, geese, and swans. Instead of bread-based stuffing, herb, onions, or nuts might have been added to the birds for extra flavor. And Bradford also commented that the fall harvest that year produced a great store of wild turkeys along with venison. So Winslow wrote that the Wampanoag arrived with an offering of five deer. It is probable that the deer was roasted on a spit over a smoldering fire and that the 
colonists might have used some of the venison to whip up a hearty stew. It doesn't sound like anything like we're doing right now, right? No, not at all. But uh, <laughs> knowing those folks, they're used to fire because, uh, you know, I throw a few human bodies on there as well while you're at it. Right. <laughs> so in 1621, Thanksgiving celebration marked the pilgrims' first autumn harvest. So it's likely that the colonists feasted on a bounty that they had reaped with the help of their Native American neighbors. Local vegetables that likely appeared on the table to include onions, beans, lettuce, spinach, cabbage, carrots, and perhaps peas. Corn, which records show was plentiful at the first harvest, might have also been served, but in those days, the corn would have been removed from the cob and turned into cornmeal, which was then boiled and pounded into a thick corn mush or porridge that was occasionally sweetened with sugar and molasses. So now we got corn mush versus corn. <laughs> that almost sounds appetizing. Almost, I guess. I mean, I like grits, so that's one of those things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so fruits indigenous to the region included blueberries, plums, grapes, gooseberries, raspberries, and of course, cranberries, which Native Americans ate. The pilgrims might have been familiar with the cranberries by the first Thanksgiving, but they wouldn't have made sauces and relishes because most of the sugar was already depleted. Cooks didn't begin boiling cranberries with sugar and using the mixture as an accompaniment for meats until about 50 years later. Oh, wow. Yeah. So culinary historians believe that much of the Thanksgiving meal consisted of seafood. Mussels in particular were abundant in New England and could be easily harvested. Lobster, bass, clams, and oysters might have been part of the feast. That makes sense. It does, absolutely, because you pointed that out last week. So I'm, I'm wondering if uh, one of these pilgrims like uh, was down there diving for some of those lobsters. You know? Oh, gosh, yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. Mm. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. So the Spanish began introducing the potato to Europeans around 1570. But by the time the pilgrims boarded the Mayflower, potatoes had not become popular enough with the English. The local native inhabitants are known to have eaten other plant roots, such as Indian turnips and groundnuts, which they may or may not have brought to the party. So it's kind of weird. We have all these weird traditions now. And there's a little bit in here that kind of moves forward with that but not a lot so we got creative along the way right <laughs> yeah absolutely i think probably people got tired of eating the same things back then as right, well, right? <laughs> so both the pilgrims and members of the wampanoag tribe ate pumpkins and, and other squashes indigenous to new england possibly even during the harvest festival but there are no supplies to make pies remember they're out of sugar yeah but see they ate pumpkins though see i told you uh, uh, so <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> <laughs> Y'all can have all those pumpkins you want. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Moreover, settlers hadn't yet constructed an oven for baking. So according to some accounts, early English settlers in North America improvised by hollowing out pumpkins, filling the shells with milk, honey, and spices to make a custard, then roasting the gourds over whole hot ashes. So hmm. there's kind of a start of a pumpkin pie right there, right? It's a custard. Sounds good. I could do that. Right. So uh, cranberries are native to North America, so early settlers did use them in other dishes, but it wasn't until the Civil War that they became a Thanksgiving staple. Huh. I wonder why that is. So just a real quick blurb. Um, General Grant, when they were 
in the field still fighting. And by this time, Thanksgiving was kind of getting to be something that was, I mean, not necessarily totally accepted, but pretty close. And so people were already having celebrations. And he was the one that said, we need to have cranberries with our Thanksgiving dinner here out in the field. So give it to Grant to do that. Make it so. Right? (laughs) Well, you are a general, so I guess you can do whatever you want. Exactly. So Sarah Hale, if you remember last week, we talked about this lady, Sarah Hale, the one that did Mary Had a Little Lamb. Mother of Thanksgiving. That's right. The same woman who petitioned for 30 years to make Thanksgiving a national holiday is credited with making mashed potatoes a Thanksgiving side dish. Really? In her novel, Northwood, she wrote recipes of idealized Thanksgiving meals and mashed potatoes was one of the big ones in there. Yeah, I should say, who knew? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> well, here I thought it was all about the uh, lambs and uh, fleeces white as snow. Guess not. Right? <laughs> so finally, green bean casserole was whipped up in 1955 by Dorcas Riley, a home economist. A guy, well, I don't know why I struggled with that word economist (laughs) working in the Campbell's Soup Company test kitchens. Campbell's now estimates that 30% of their cream of mushroom soup is bought specifically for use in green bean casserole. And this is where I go, blech. Okay, see, I like that. (laughs) Yeah, not a fan. And although they used uh, other herbs and nuts to stuff the first Thanksgiving birds, today stuffing turkeys is a way to keep the bird moist through the roasting process and add extra flavor. And according to the National Turkey Federation, 88% of Americans will eat turkeys in some form on Thanksgiving Day, which amounts to an estimated 44 million birds. Wow. Take that there, vegans. Yep. <laughs> so we go from fouling trips. <laughs> okay. To 88 million birds. (laughs) Wow. So there's kind of a a quick summation of how things kind of evolved into making what we call traditional Thanksgiving dinners. Yeah. And uh, I wonder if they came up with the uh, turducken idea back in the day, you know, because they had turkey and duck and swan. Yeah, I don't know where they came from. (laughs) Myself, I can't really imagine eating a swan, but... uh, you know, that's, I don't know. That's uh, not my thing. I don't know if you're hungry enough, you'll eat anything. Trust me. Well, that was a good point there. You know, coming over on the Mayflower and having 66 days of uh, fun with your best friends. Yeah. If they're still alive. Exactly. Then, uh, yeah, I, I, I get it. <laughs> so when you're sitting down with your family to eat your Thanksgiving dinners, think about where the, all those uh, foods originated from and maybe create a brand new one. Yeah, that's a great idea. You know, because when you have this kind of a tradition, Thanksgiving, you really don't think about that. All you do is think about, uh, okay, how fast can I shovel this food in my face and get back to the football game, you know? Right, and then take a nap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but no, I've, I've always wondered. That's why I mentioned it last week. It's like, I wonder what they ate, you know? So yep. you answered that question. Well done. Well, there we go. Well, thanks. That was fun. It was interesting. Yeah. And speaking of Thanksgiving, I know there's some activities that are going on in Cripple Creek. Uh, What is happening during that time? Because we're going to be dark next week. So we want to give people some information. Oh, for sure. So, um, I mean, a lot of really cool stuff is happening at the Aspen Mind Center. And if you guys don't know what that is, it's called the Community of Caring. And they do great work for folks throughout the entire Teller County area. You know, if you need help with anything, they have all sorts of resources for you. But one of the really cool things that they do is they have a Thanksgiving dinner that they serve up. Anybody can come. Anybody can participate. They need people to help serve it. And I can tell you, I've done it. I've been there. 
right in frontline serving, it is really, really fulfilling. You get to meet people and it's from all sorts of walks. I mean, some of them are really down on their luck. Some of them are there just to, you know, communicate and have fun with other people. And it's just really a cool environment. So get in touch with the Aspen Mind Center. They are looking for folks right now to help serve that. And that's going to be on November 22nd at the Aspen Mind Center in Cripple Creek. Hey, so you can have a traditional turkey dinner after you work for a while and then go back home and double it up and have some more tryptophan on Thursday. Absolutely. And these guys work their butts off. I worked in the kitchen last year. It's the first time I did that. They're amazing. Amazing. So, and it's free. Like I said, it's free to the community. They do ask if anybody can help donate uh, food to it, uh, roast some turkeys and bring them in. That's a huge help too. But the main thing is just to bring the community together. And it's just fun. That really is uh, one of my favorite places to visit when I come up to Cripple Creek. And, uh, you know, just because I like hanging out and talking to the people and the volunteers that are there. And uh, every now and then you uh, actually learn some pretty cool stuff that's uh, for sale. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Their thrift store is awesome. <laughs> it's cool. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, it is. I've purchased a few things from that place. And uh, you can find them for a, a really good price as well. Their prices are ridiculously low. They yeah. really are. Yeah. <laughs> so get up there and start doing some Christmas shopping, you know? There's yeah, there you go. Stuff in there. There's a craft fair going out the Victor's Elks Lodge this weekend on Saturday the 18th. And then Victor has their Thanksgiving dinner on Sunday the 19th. Again, the Aspen Mines having their community dinner on November 22nd. The head frames. So all the head frames throughout the district, are they have lights on them. And every night, starting on November 24th, all the way through New Year's Day, they have volunteers that go start the gas generators that run those lights. And so you can watch the light on all the different head frames throughout the district. There's a whole map you can get everything. So that's fun to do. Yeah, and I've got to throw a shout out to those volunteers who maintain those head frames because, uh, like they say, volunteer, if it's uh, snowing, raining, whatever's going to do, and below zero temperatures, those people go up there and fire up those generators. Yes. So we can have pretty things to look at during Christmas. Absolutely. And then um, just the big one uh, for Cripple Creek. Our big celebration is Saturday, December 9th, and they'll be having a parade. All sorts of activities are going on at the Aspen Mine Center. There's like a wreath contest. There is a Christmas tree decorating contest. There's cookie baking contest, soup contest. And all of this, of course, benefits the Aspen Mine Center. So get up there and enjoy all that fun stuff. There's a craft fair going on at Parks and Rec. So if you go to Facebook page Aspen Mind Center slash Community of Caring, there's a whole schedule of events on their site. And so don't miss any of it because it's all really fun. Yeah, maybe we can talk a couple of local gym owners to donate a membership with all this food and cookies and everything else going on. Right? I need one. <laughs> I know, exactly. Wow. Yeah, you can have a big dinner in Victor one weekend and next week you can have them at the Aspen Mind Center. It's like, yeah, endless amount of food, which is good. By the end of Christmas, I'll be looking like fat bastard anyway, so, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> Man, there's so much stuff going on, and uh, if you're hunkered down in your own bear cave, then uh, get out. Absolutely, yeah. Go yeah. do something. There's so much stuff going on right now. That's crazy. Yeah, there is. <laughs> so now it's starting to get busy. Everybody's getting ready for Thanksgiving. Christmas shopping's going to start soon. Pay attention to the roads. Be careful, and just be safe. That's right. Good bit of advice, and you should heed it. Anyway, if I don't see between now and Thanksgiving, you have a great Thanksgiving day, and if you find a pumpkin pie sitting on your porch, you know where it came from. Yeah, I'm going to feed it to the deer. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, 
I guess Sorry. we don't have to worry about Michelle volunteering to play the Great Pumpkin next Halloween. So anyway. You. Everybody have a great Thanksgiving. Remember what we're celebrating. Be thankful for everything in your life and just take care of each other. There you go. All right, Michelle. Well, I'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks because, again, we are dark next week. And uh, you have yourself a great holiday. All right. You too. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye. That was Michelle Roselle calling us from Cripple Creek. And uh, man, I'm hungry after talking about all that food. But up next on the Bear Cave Hotline, it's the big news with our field producer, Trevor Phipps. Trevor, what's happening, man? How are you doing today? I think I'm in election recovery mode. I'm just so glad that it's over. But as soon as I say that, here comes STRs. <laughs> it's just getting heated. But yeah, it's getting down to that point now where everybody's you know, complaining. And yes, it's a wash, rinse, repeat up here in Teller County. But as I was cutting the uh, the show last week with the mayor when she came on, I just felt that, uh, and you and I have been kicking this around. I just felt that it's time now for the citizens to come on and present their initiative. So at the end of the month, because we're dark next week, it'll be the Arnie and Jerry show or segment for a while. So we're going to let them uh, talk about what they want and hopefully be done with it all until the lawsuits fly. <laughs> you know, but, but it sounds like the elections, uh, at least in, in principle, are about as solid as they are ever going to get, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I just talked to the Teller County Clerk's Office yesterday, and I guess tonight's the deadline for, like, the cured ballot, right. which on midnight, November 16th. So November 15th was the last day they had to get all the ballots in, and there wasn't enough ballots still left to be cured in order for anything to change. And actually, despite one of the races was only 56 votes apart, it wasn't small enough to strike an automatic recount. Yeah. So, yeah, so we're pretty safe to say that the results are official. Nick Bates and Kelsey Turnbull did retain their seats on school board and David Islandworth did not. So Keegan Barkley will be the only new school board member to get sworn in. And I guess they get sworn in 10 days after the election is certified. And elections should be certified probably sometime this week or next week. Well, you know, it's kind of like we said before. And, uh, you know, the school board, they needed a majority to make really a difference. And it sounds like it's just going to be pretty much status quo with, uh, you know, one kind of pebble in their shoe. But uh, I just hope she sticks it out for the long run. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. But I'm definitely over that election. But uh, but this week, as you know, we did have uh, Annie Durham on and, uh, you know, we talked to her for a while and that there's no doubt about that election. That was pretty much a, a one-sided victory, but I'm just going to be glad when all this stuff is over with so we can move on with other stuff, you know, but, right. but it seems like uh, if I look at the overall kind of big picture of the elections, it seems like it was a clean election. It was, you know, nothing yeah. really stood out. And the fact that uh, Teller County came out in force to vote, that makes me really happy. I actually did a little bit of more research since last weekend and the turnout was really good. It was like 59% turnout, which was higher than any off year election, but it wasn't quite as high as, for example, the 2022 general election. Right. Got about 13,000 some votes, whereas this one got 11,000 some votes. So it really wasn't that far off from a major election. So they definitely got people out and voting. And another thing I found interesting is that the two people that raised the most amount of money were so Seth Bryant, David Eilingworth, and both of them lost. And then the two people that spent the most money were Mike Knott and Seth Bryant, and both of them lost. So it kind of just goes to show that it doesn't really make a huge difference. Just because you've got $25,000 into your campaign doesn't mean that you're going to win. 
Yeah, you know, and, and after we were talking last week about the amount of money that was spent, it kind of just blows my mind that, and I'm not saying that it happened, but it's almost like, hey, you know, we can buy this election if we spend enough money instead of relying on principle and what you stand for. And uh, I think a lot of people were just turned off by Mr. Illingworth because of his kind of past antics, so to speak. And people are just tired of it. They're tired of the vitriol. They're tired of the finger pointing. They're tired of the accusations. And uh, it, it really showed in this election. I mean, 222 votes may not seem like a lot, but relatively speaking, it was quite a bit if you look at the other candidates. Well, and, and you know, and to me, it goes to show that being conservative wasn't necessarily the issue. It was You're right. kind of specifically him because for the majority, they voted conservative. It seemed like there was an issue the voters had with Islinger. I agree with you. And I don't personally know the guy. I just know from the few years that I've been up here, if you put yourself in the limelight and it's not necessarily all good, people are going to remember that, especially up here in Teller County. We're not that big of a place. And, uh, you know, you can only rock the boat so much and you can only troll so much before people have just, they've had it. They're sick and tired of it. So all I can say is good luck to those who won and uh, hopefully you can make things better for the kids, the kids. Yeah. Yeah. That is what this is all about. It seems like that gets lost. For sure. But uh, somehow this is going to segue into sports. I don't know how, but uh, I'm going to give it a shot anyway. Way because uh, Thanksgiving is kind of that day when you just kind of munch out and, and watch football. And speaking of which, boy, talk about the uh, Broncos. Yeah, I go back to my old metaphors and, and stuff like that. And it's like the blind squirrel found a nut last week against Buffalo. And uh, yeah, it was kind of ugly, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was just a sloppy game altogether. The Bills had something like five or six turnovers. I mean, really, the Broncos should have been up like 45 to 21 or whatever at the yeah. end of the game. Yeah, if they could yeah. just not capitalize up all the chances their defense is giving them. The offense just could not capitalize. They kicked like four field goals and got two touchdowns and then missed both extra points to the touchdowns. Yeah, that was aggravating. It was frustrating. And then, you know, really the Broncos wouldn't have won if it wasn't for the Bills making huge mistakes at the end. There's a bad pass interference call, but it was a clean call. It was obviously pass interference. Right. No argument that, but that put the Broncos down in the red zone with 20 some seconds left and I was baffled. I was kind of like screaming at the play calling Sean Payton all game. And I'm yelling at my TV because there's 25 seconds left and it was like second down and something. They have zero timeouts. He hikes it and kneels it. The offense goes back. There's 25 seconds left. It's like third and 18 and they're lining up with no timeouts. And I'm going, why are they doing this? Why aren't you just putting your field goal kicking team out there right now? And then I thought about it. I was like, well, I guess maybe it's one of Sean Payton's little tricks to wind down the clock and make sure that there's no time left. It's a trick play. And he went to high school with the uh, opposing coach who, who didn't yeah. do math very well and can't count. <laughs> yeah. You know, everybody says, oh, is you know, the Bills can't count so they messed up. But actually, that last play where he, he had him down the ball and then all of a sudden did a quick switch with the special teams on there and lined up and kicked the field goal. Yeah. They missed that first one. But with that trick play, it was enough to throw off the defense. And I doubt he planned on them having 12 men on the field, but it was designed to create some trickery and to throw off the defense as much as it was, I'm sure, to just drain the clock. And it worked. It gave him a second chance. So like when I was screaming at the TV when it was happening, <laughs> thinking he was an idiot. In hindsight, I was like, actually, that was pretty genius because we would have lost that game if he hadn't done that weird thing at the end. Yeah, and it's funny if people have been listening to the show for a while, they know that we only talk about teams that win. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
because uh, it's been such a disaster. But hey, you know, like they say, a win's a win. And uh, I guess, uh, Denver, you can take it and go on to the next one. If they win a few more games, and I'm just saying if, because I'm still the skeptic that sits around and just goes, well, we'll see what happens this week. Well, I think Minnesota is going to be hard for them to beat. Yeah. And then they've got Cleveland coming up next week. Cleveland looks pretty good. They're both home games, though, so. Well, we'll see. All I can say is is that uh, take a game at a time. I'm not going to get too excited just because uh, I don't want my little heart broken again like last year. It was such a disaster. But uh, right. I'm going to let you go today because I know you got things to do. You have an excellent thanks giving and uh, I'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. All right, that sounds good. You have a good day. All right, Trevor, you too. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye now. That was our field producer, Trevor Phipps, with the big news. And maybe not so big news. It is kind of getting around the holidays and people are trying to mellow out a little bit. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. And when we come back, we'll be talking with Butte Theater Manager Zach Staniel, followed by News of the Weird, and find out who nosedives onto the bear pile this week. Stick around. By making gradual changes in your life, you can achieve your goals. Perhaps it's a change in your diet, losing a few pounds, or reducing stress. You can always improve your health. If you want to explore ideas on how to achieve a more mindful and healthier way of life, then you've come to the right place. Animus Wellbeing in Woodland Park, Colorado offers nutritional consultations. We work with you to design a program that fits your specific needs to help you enjoy a better quality of life. So check us out at animuswellbeing.com. That's A-N-I-M-A-S-W-E-L-L-B-E-I-N-G.com. Or call us at 818-400-1456. Let us help you to achieve a life of optimal well-being. I'm Dennis Zarrell, and on the Bear Cave Hotline, it's our friend and title sponsor, the manager of the Butte Theater, Zach Stanio. Zach, how are you today, my friend? Dennis, I am doing well, man. Just driving around, putting up posters for the Christmas show. Oh, that's right. And that's what we want to talk about. It is back and sounds like it's going to be a pretty awesome show. Yeah. Ben Air uh, stepped up and uh, kind of saved my butt and helped me uh, help me save Christmas with uh, everything that kind of went on. And, uh, we were able to able to pivot really quickly, as well as uh, the friends of the Butte stepped up with the, uh, the Patsy Klein and the Edgar Allan Poe show. And uh, yeah, we're just gearing up to head into Christmas, uh, opening up on Black Friday. And yeah, it's going to be good. It's uh, it's a show they did back in 2017, and uh, Mel Moser's back reprising his role. So it'll be uh, good for the community to see him on the stage once again. And uh, yeah, we're just really excited. That's pretty awesome. It's uh, kind of like old home week, you know, bringing people back for Christmas time. That's kind of cool. But uh, I didn't make it to Patsy Klein. I, like, I, I tried like hell, but uh, of course, you know, life got in the way and I'm just babbling and making excuses at this point. But kind of wrap up that last show for us and uh, sounds like everything went great. Dude, yeah, better than great. I uh, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, we had done a show back in, uh, I believe it was March. So 
you know, a lot of people had seen it before, but uh, Robert uh, had worked with the direct uh, Sonia and they uh, added a new scene and kind of tightened things up a little bit, man. And I think Sunday we closed a house about 140. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was it was well received, very well received. I think the smallest audience we did was uh, like 70 people. So it was still really good. Yeah, that's nice. You know, it's funny because last summer we were talking about it's like, yeah, I got to think about starting uh, the Christmas show and getting all that stuff together. And all of a sudden, here we are. I'm like, oh, you're telling me, man, you're telling me time flies. And I, I just, uh, you know, I'm so thankful to the community, you know, for sticking with us. This is uh, part of it. I'm, I'm feeling like I'm kind of running this place into the ground, but then just seeing how uh, how quickly we were able to pivot after uh, kind of getting thrown in the monkey of all wrenches and uh, seeing how just that the community stepped up and our patrons have stepped up. And I don't think I've got one bad phone call or email about everything that went on. Everybody's just been super supportive. And, uh, I, you know, I'm grateful for that and just, uh, bless more than I deserve. Well, I know you got big props from the mayor because, uh, Mayor elect Annie Durham was on earlier in the segment and, uh, you know, she was, she was giving you big props and, and I agree. It's kind of a bummer because now she's not going to be able to participate with the uh, Butte Theater as much as she wanted to, but yeah, she did, she did tell me that she's going to have a week, you know, there during Christmas to, to come back and, and play. So that's cool. Yeah. I think she's actually closing out the Christmas show for us. So that's awesome. I, uh, you know, I know I'm just, I'm amazed on, uh, everything that she does and it's just it's going to be really really interesting and kind of uh, exciting to see uh kind of what she brings to the town uh starting in january but yeah the uh, the only downside to her getting elected as mayor is uh probably not getting to see her as much on stage for the next four years yeah that's for sure but uh i'm gonna head up there during the time that she's playing not that i i'll probably come and see the show a couple of times because i know it's going to be awesome but um you know you guys are moving in the right direction and uh don't don't get down man because uh it is the entertainment industry Industry. That's kind of what happens. And uh, look at it this way. At least the actors are almost off strike in L.A., <laughs> which, yeah, you know, I, I don't know what that equates to to uh, the theater business, but things change all the time. And uh, with Chamonix opening up, I'm hoping that that at least you get some business coming from that uh, casino. You know, having live theater in, in a town like Cripple Creek, uh, it, it's so unique and it's been going on up there since the uh, since the 1940s. And I actually had a really good uh, conversation with the Mackins over the weekend. Uh, they came to see the Patsy Klein show and just kind of telling me about, uh, you know, starting theater up there and then uh, kind of how uh, how the Butte looked at its inception and kind of where it's at now. And moving forward, it was definitely, definitely heartwarming and definitely confidence inspiring as far as, you know, it's not going to be that hard to throw a, throw a theater company together next year or find a theater company that can work. And, uh, you know, my plan is to have multiple theater companies so we're kind of getting some fresh ideas fresh blood in there next year and yeah just really set the set the beat up to continue doing awesome theater and, and not put us in a position where we're using one company and we can potentially get in a little bit of an issue <laughs> yeah th i think diversity is good and uh you had a, a few challenges and stuff like that but uh, that's that's part of the game man and, and uh, if i know you you're gonna have another great season so i'm confident you do what you do and we're gonna do what we do amen yeah and by the by the grace of god man i uh you know a lot, a lot of prayer with everything going on and it, it's definitely working out so i can't stress that enough all right zach well it sounds like you got your hands full i'm gonna let you get on with your day and uh we'll be up there to the butte theater and once again thanks for sponsoring the bear cave we love the relationship that we have with the butte theater and look forward to continuing that partnership absolutely absolutely dennis and we just want to say thank you for for the continued support and pushing the word out about us and 109 is it 119 episodes now it is 119 yep exactly yeah 
keep it going, man. Keep it going. I plan on being on the 200. Yeah, we're going to love to have you. All right, my friend. Good to talk to you as always, and uh, I'll see you soon. Sounds good, brother. All right, Zach, take care. You too, Dennis. Bye now. That was the Butte Theater Manager and our title sponsor for the Bear Cave, Zach Stanio. And moving right along, it is now time for News of the Weird. The headline this week reads, Not So Magic. Well, let's find out what's not so magic. A man by the name of Joshua Dillon, 37, went on a drug fuel rampage early on October 29th. He was forcing his way into two homes in Rush Township, Pennsylvania. Huh, never heard of it. Dillon told homeowners he had been shot and was in danger. After barging into the last home, he threw a television to the ground, dumped a CD rack, threw a lamp, broke a handle off a cast iron skillet, and rubbed frozen meat on his chest. Okay. Dylan allegedly consumed a quarter ounce of hallucinogenic mushrooms and now faces felony charges of burglary and trespassing. But a skillet handle? That must have been something to watch. Anyway, wasting good meat? What are you thinking? Well, Joshua, with those not-so-magical antics, all I can tell you is that it gives you an automatic nomination for The Bear Pile. Each week, we nominate a person, place, and or thing who should be tossed onto the bear pile to be eaten by the bears. From last week's nominations, the person, place, and or thing to be thrown onto the bear pile to become appetizers is... The protesters and politicians who support the terrorist group Hamas for being ignorant fools and puppets by supporting murder, rape, mutilation, kidnapping, and all kinds of things on innocent people. And they're just not Israelis, people. Like I said last week, there's a special place in hell for you. Trust me. Plenty of seats. No waiting. The nominations this week for the honor of diving onto the bear pile are... Number one, and no surprise, Alejandro Majorcus for... Well, well, hang on just a second. How about the entire Sniffy Joe administration for allowing the entire United States to become targets of violence and terrorist attacks and then forcing us into bankruptcy by allowing five million of your closest friends to just walk in unabated? Now, my question is still this. Where the hell is the borders are Obama in all of this mess? Oh, yeah, never mind. That's right. She's still rearranging furniture in her office for the 10th time. God forbid that you should ever visit the border. Ever. Number two. Climate warrior and high school dropout Greta Thunberg for once again showing your true colors through anti-Semitic rhetoric and somehow equating it to climate change. I wonder if all those strings attached to her body ever get uncomfortable. Yeah, I sure hope so. And number three, the psilocybin mushroom king of Pennsylvania, Joshua Dillon for eating almost an ounce of those little lovely fungi and paying an unwanted visit to his neighbors for dinner. Well, Joshua, maybe next time you want to break into your neighbor next door for some grub, don't rub the main dish all over your swarty body and absolutely do not break the cookware. Yeah, I'm still wondering how the hell he broke that handle off the cast iron pan. Yeah, it must have been made in China. Well, that's it for me this week, Cubs. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Abode Real Estate, The Butte Theater, and Animus Wellbeing. I want to thank my guest today, Cripple Creek Mayor-elect Annie Durham. Really can't thank her enough for being so candid with her uh, discussions she had with us today. And for her service not only to Cripple Creek, but to Teller County. And we wish her well as she leads Cripple Creek into a new era. 
Thanks to our friend, the Butte Theater Manager, Zach Staniel, for his update on the Bear Cave Hotline. Thanks to my producing partner, Michelle Roselle, for bringing us another great story time, and our film producer, Trevor Phipps, with the big news. If you have an event coming up or you want to sponsor the show, you can reach us on our Facebook page, This Week in the Bear Cave, or our Instagram page by the same name. And as always, you can send your comments and hate mail to thisweekinthebearcave at gmail.com. You can access the show on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor by Spotify, Podbean, RadioPublic.com, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our celebrity not-so-celebrity guest next week is going to be Greta Thunberg. We want to know how much money she spends jetting around the world to talk about the dangers of fossil fuels. If that ain't the pot calling the kettle black, I don't know what it is. We tried to get in touch with disgraced crypto boy Sam Bankman fried who was scheduled to talk with us on the Bear Cave Hotline this week, but we are told that he wanted an appearance fee paid in cryptocurrency. <laughs> so we made a counteroffer of a Goldfinger CD, but uh, of course he turned that down. Oh well, you're lost, Sammy. Guess we'll give your parents a call next time. Maybe they can sell that CD to earn some money for those attorney fees. Yeah, they're going to need it. We'll be back in two weeks, but until then, have an amazing Thanksgiving. Be well, and thanks for listening. Sweet dreams, Sam and Max. This Week in the Barricade is produced by Animus Productions, all rights reserved in perpetuity. <laughs>